0: And uh, Jeremiah is going to be leading us this morning in a scripture reading from Psalm 23. And here's what I'd like, um, as Jeremiah leads, if we would all follow his lead, and we're going to read this aloud together, all right? So at Jeremiah's lead, Psalm 23. All right. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you this morning that we can come before you. Because of your son, Jesus, we can come before you confident. That we are your people, the sheep of your pasture. That you are our shepherd. You are our good shepherd. So God, as we begin this journey diving into this chapter that you've gifted to us in such a special way, we, um, we pray for this whole series. We pray that Jesus, just as you said, you know your sheep and they hear your voice. So may we hear you, God, in a way that goes beyond our understanding, God, but in a way that's real. May we hear from you Holy Spirit, we give you the freedom to speak to us, to interrupt our lives even, to lead us in your paths of righteousness, ultimately for your name's sake, God. So we give you the glory today, Jesus. We're here for you. We seek for you to be at the center of our lives. So we give you the stage. We ask that you would speak to us. We believe you will. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Well, as we break into Psalm 23 today, the title of my sermon this morning is Psalm 23, a reintroduction, a reintroduction. Have you ever had to reintroduce yourself to someone before? There's a guy that I have met this year close to six times. I go to this like pastors gathering once every a few months called Church United where I get to link up with other pastors and get to know them. And every time I see this nameless guy, I know his name, he doesn't know mine, but every time I see him, it's it's so good to see you and his response is it's so nice to meet you. Around the third time, I started to feel kind of worthless, you know? Like and isn't that that sometimes the most frustrating and awkward thing when it's like, "Hey, oh, so good." And they go, "Oh, what's your name?" And you're like, <laughs> "Andrew?" You want my number? want a photo? Um, It can be kind of difficult, especially when you remember them. There's a handful of people that this has happened to me too, where I've had to reintroduce myself a handful of times. I think it's safe to say this morning that this isn't the first time that we've all met Psalm 23. Anybody here would agree this is not the first time I've met Psalm 23, if not all of us? Um, Why is that? Well, Psalm 23 is easily the most famous chapter in all the Bible, without question. Both the religious and non-religious alike have called on this psalm for hope, for help in times of trouble. I'm sure each of us, if not all of us, have recited or had it read over us to us before in some memorial setting coming Tuesday is 17 years since our country faced a devastating disaster on 9-11. And it was following September 11th that George Bush, before a captivated audience, he said, "'Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for God is with me. His rod and his staff comforts me.'" There is, without a doubt, a sort of special blessing that God has gifted to the world through this short six-verse Hebrew poem. It's not a question. God has gifted the world this special poem in such significant ways. Um, Charles Spurgeon, he often says it best. He was called the Prince of Preachers. He had this to say about Psalm Twenty-three. He said that it has charmed more griefs than the rest of than to rest. He has charmed more grief, griefs, excuse me, to rest than all the philosophy of the world. Psalm twenty-three has remanded to their dun- their dungeon more felon thoughts, more black doubts, more thieving sorrows than there are sands on the seashore. It has comforted the noble hosts of the poor. It has sung courage to the army of the disappointed. It has poured balm and consolation. Into the heart of the sick, of captives in dungeons, of widows in their pinching griefs, of orphans in their loneliness. He says, dying soldiers have died easier as it was read to them. Ghastly hospitals have been illuminated. It has visited the prisoner and broken his chains. And like Peter's angel, look at this, led him forth in imagination and sung him back to his home. Again, it has made the dying Christian slave freer than his master and consoled those whom dying he left behind mourning, not so much that he was gone as because they were left behind and could not go to. I certainly could not have said it better. There is no question. There's a special gift to this world of comfort of help, of hope through this psalm. It's, it's probably why it's also the most culturally referenced chapter in the Bible. Not sure if you realize that, but Psalm 23 has more pop culture references than any other full chapter, whether it's Jesus Walks by Kanye West, or it's Coolio's classic Gangster's Paradise, or Tupac. Or you too, Pink Floyd, the Grateful Dead, even the beloved Megadeth. <laughs> it's worked its way even into our culture. At the end of the movie Titanic, as the ship is going down, there's a pastor there reading Psalm 23. There is an episode of an addictive show that I will dissuade you from watching called Lost. And that's what happens, by the way, when you watch that show. I just want to say that. But you get lost. But there's a whole episode entitled, The Lord is My Shepherd. Not the first time we've met this psalm. Certainly a chapter we've all met, but I would submit that a chapter that we could be reintroduced Mainly because I think this, I think sometimes the best way not to truly know something is to assume that you do. The best way to not truly know something is to assume assume that you do. Sometimes we can be so familiar with even friends and loved ones and God and, and the scriptures and life that we actually miss what's sometimes right in front of us. I would submit that though this is a famous psalm, this may be the most famous chapter in the Bible that's never truly known. I mean, known the way it was meant to be known, which was not just an intellectual experience, but a life-changing experience, a life that can say, like David, the Lord is my shepherd, a life that lives out these truths. So in light of that, I'd like for us to have a bit of a reintroduction today. Um, Before we break into, line by line, for the next few weeks, what our shepherd is seeking to be in our lives, I want to start again with a reintroduction. I want to look at three things today about this psalm. I want to look at the placement of Psalm 23. I'd like to look at the poet of Psalm 23, and I'd like us to close with the purpose of Psalm 23. First, let's look at the placement of Psalm 23, which you should know by now because you're turned to Psalm chapter 23. The placement of Psalm 23 is in none other than the Psalms, which is the song book of Israel, this incredible 150-chapter book, packed there in the Old Testament, that made up the very hymns of the Hebrews. It was the playlist of the people, Songs of the Saints. All right. This was the book. These were the songs that the Jews would come together around and sing to their God with. In the Hebrew, it's the word tahalim, tahalim, in the Hebrew Bible, tahalim. A psalm is a poem or a hymn. Uh, The psalms are a book of praise. In the Greek, it's translated, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is translated psalmos, which literally means a lyrical ode that's played to stringed instruments. Basically, God's into rock and roll is what I think that means. But it's a song sung to the accompaniment of musical instruments, and that's certainly what this book is. God's people would get together, they would open up the Psalms, gathered around their God, they would sing to him from this songbook. It was a, it is a rather a collection of 150 individual Hebrew poems, prayers, songs of praise, and meditations, written over a period of about a thousand years, contributed to by authors like Moses to the sons of Korah, to a guy named Asaph, to David's son Solomon, to, of course, the most prominent author of the Psalms, King David, who wrote a whopping 73 of the Psalms that we read. Half of the Psalms are what are called laments. You might have heard of the book of Lamentations before, which is to grieve and to weep and to cry out in great agony and pain. You're like, I didn't know I could do that as a Christian. You most certainly could. And he most certainly should. Jesus himself, we see, even quoting from the Psalms on the cross. The Psalms, as the songbook of Israel, would fall under the category of Hebrew poetry. And this is really important for us to do this, to understand that the Bible itself is just as complex as the book of Psalms. The word Bible, for example, it comes from a word that means library. The Bible isn't really a book as much as it's it's a library of books, a collection of books over uh, 66 books, uh, contributed to by uh, about 40 or so authors over a period of 1,500 years, three different languages. But probably the most important thing about the Bible is that it's made up of a variety of different literary styles. It's like God knew that we would need more than just information. So the most prominent way that God gives us his word is through narrative. Okay? In the Bible, you have 44% of the Bible being a story that's being told. You have 33% of the Bible being poetry, as we just read. Um, Hebrew poetry specifically, which is different from like, roses are red, violets are blue, you know, I am awesome, you are too. Um, Bars. Um, Hebrew poetry doesn't have rhyme or rhythm as much. It it usually is expounding on a central thought, but 33% of the Bible, poetry. And then 23% is what we tend to reduce the Bible to, which is discourse. Which is basically, this is true, so that is true, therefore you should do this so that that doesn't happen. All right? It's, it's the theological breakdowns of the New Testament, it's the epistles. Okay? 44% narrative, I think, is an important thing for us to see, right? Like, a lot of times we approach the Bible expecting it to give us what it was never written to say. So the Bible begins with this incredible, I think, interruption to how we look at the Bible. The Bible begins with this In the beginning, God, for example. Two things. First, the Bible begins by introing a story. I love that. Welcome to the story of God. And number two, the Bible begins with God. In other words, this is a book about God. This is a story about God, and it goes on to tell this story. 44% of it, we see the story of God. That's what the Bible is. It's telling the story of humanity from God's perspective, starring the main character, of course, Jesus 44% narrative. So much of that, of course, made up of the Hebrews' history of the Jewish people. And out of that culture comes the poets, Hebrew poetry. And I just think it's so important for us to see this, um, specifically because Jesus himself, he said this. He said that as followers of his, we're called to love him. Our relationship with him, as we are continuing to grow, what happens over time when you follow Jesus, it's not that you're like, I look better than that person over there. That's not sanctification. Sanctification, according to the words of Jesus, is that there's almost this like integration of your being to love God with every part of you. And the second is you love your neighbor as yourself. But the, the most important, Jesus says, is that you love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, All of your mind and all of your strength. And I think sometimes seeing that the Bible is not just discourse and even narrative, I think it challenges this. Because some of us, we love God with our mind. We know the information. Thus saith the Lord, bro. I know the word, I know the verses. But do you love God with your soul? Do you actually, with those things that you're saying, do you believe them in your heart? See, God knew that we were more than just a brain. So Jesus comes on the scene, and the way that he teaches about the kingdom is he doesn't say say A plus B equals C. He tells what are called parables. He tells stories. He's speaking to the imagination of man who was made in God's image, image, imagination, with the same capacity that God has to imagine and to create. God speaks your language sometimes more than you're letting him. And he wants to get into areas of our lives that are deeper than just what we know. But he wants us to be people who love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So he gets us sometimes out of discourse into the Psalms. Now, the Psalms break out a whole new part of us that some of us are afraid to dive into sometimes. We love the epistles. Just tell me what to do. Give me some information. That's what I need in this world, okay? I need some new info. That's my problem. And the Psalms say, it's deeper than that. So we have this gift of Hebrew poetry that it has a few different purposes, more than just information. You could write this down. The first thing that Hebrew poetry does for us, the Psalms, Psalm 23, is that it invokes creative imagination. This is what God wants in our lives. He doesn't want droids who just kind of go to church, believe the Bible, John 3, 16. Like, he doesn't want Domo Orgato Christians, okay? He's looking to invoke the image of God in us, which is this creative imagination. So he gives us the poets. That's what poetry does. Now, I know there's not too many of us in here who spent our last Friday night at a poetry slam. If you did, you're awesome, okay? But Hebrew poetry in particular, it's super foreign to us. And and what it's doing is it's taking, again, it's taking information and it's Well, it's causing us to think on it a little deeper. So let's give an example. I want to show you an example of Hebrew poetry. Okay, so here's Exodus 14. Exodus 14, 21 and 22 tells a narrative, and it gives us information. It says this. You might have heard of this story before, seen The Prince of Egypt, great movie. It says, the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. You know, enter pocket protector and fix the glasses. Like, that's what's going on here. This is like Luke, the physician. This is very black and white information. And then you get to chapter 15, and Moses, he writes this poem, and he says almost the same thing, but in a poetic way. He says in Exodus 15, he says, By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. And some of us are like, Huh? God's nostrils? Okay. I I didn't see that in the Prince of Egypt. I didn't see God like doing a, you know, one of those, like a nostril seawall thing. Poetry, it's meant to invoke creative imagination. This is why musicians and songwriters and artists are such a gift to the body of Christ. Because God doesn't want us to just be people that just kind of gather information. He wants us to think on things, to stretch it out. I, I think of recently, my, my kid's newest hobby is making slime at home. They're addicted to it, and they're also addicted to getting my new kitchen table a mess. But um, with slime, it's, it's this thing you make at home with glue, and it's, and it's this... Lu- Wait, hold on. I brought some. Okay, so check this out. This is straight-up slime that I bought online, because I'm a father now, and... You know, I kind of, I kind of think of it this way. I think a lot of us, when it comes to God, we're, we're not poetic enough. We're not as imaginative as He, in the capacity He created us to be. So when it comes to God, it's like, it's the truth of God. And it's just like, yeah, believe it. Celebrate Christmas and believe this. God bless America and stuff. Okay. And this is kind of our experience. But here's what the, the poets, the, the Psalms, they kind of make you go, okay, let me, all right, let me look at it from this way. Now, there's actually people online that are like ninjas with this stuff and they do tricks and like backflips. I'm not going to break my back, so I'm going to put that down there. But there, there's a sense of exploration, of stretching, of getting to know it, of, of, of diving deep into it by the blasts of your nostrils, the water's piled up. It's meant to cause you to think in a new way. It's been said, like, the gospel is even like that. It's like a diamond with all these different facets to look at. That's why you have this word in, in the Psalms called Selah, which many have believed to be and to be translated. Pause and reflect. Stop and think and let this truth really be driven deep down into your heart. I thought it would be cool for us to give a live example. You guys want to have a live example of poetry? A couple of you? Okay, so I want to invite up my man, Jonathan Olark. You guys give it up for Jonathan? So Jonathan is a part of kind of a dying breed of young poets. He has an Instagram account. You can follow him at The Confessional Poet where Jonathan showcases his poetry. Um, it's a gift that he has. And I want to give you an example. Um, John chapter 10, Jesus says this, that all that the Father have given me are mine and no man shall be able to snatch them out of my hand. That's a verse that speaks about eternal security. Let's hear Jonathan describe it his own way. to my eternal one and only. Even when I fall, I stay loyal to you. Let me repeat your name a dozen times so my wretched tongue becomes an understanding of your everlasting glory. My beloved, we never parted since you intertwined my road with your highway. Together singing great tales of our becoming. Never will we part again Your heart is now mine, and together we become gloriously one. Never will height or depth, distance or disaster ever tear me out of your gentle hands. My will is surely yours for the taking. And until I see you, my eyes will only be upon the path leading right to you. Awesome. So we're diving into the ideas. That's what we're doing. So the Psalms, it starts by giving us this creative imagination, which then what God wants to do through the Psalms is this is what happens. It's meant then to provoke honest examination. Not surface-level spirituality, but what God is looking for is people, again, who love Him with our whole being. And so when you read the Psalms, you see the Psalms call us out of superficial singing into heartfelt examination. Examination of our own selves. And being willing to express to God what he already sees. and Which is most of the Psalms, isn't it? As I said, laments. Most of the Psalms are actually documented prayers that people pray in their most troubling times of life. They pray things that you don't like to hear in prayer circles. Right? We love our prayer circles to be very positive, right? Optimism. God is faithful, shh, okay? Don't cry, right? The best is yet to come. Be alive. Be good. Think positive. Listen, that's a sacrifice of who we are in God's image. Jesus himself on the cross, as he was hanging there, he cried out. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting from Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? Psalm 23. The same idea of the shepherd. Where are you? This is how God calls us to approach Him: honest examination, um, emotional expression, being real. And I think part of it is is sometimes we think that God is intimidated by what we feel. And we need to be reminded that God is not intimidated by the questions that he already sees us asking. (laughs) He sees us asking those questions. He sees us wrestling with that. And that's why the Psalms are so great. The Psalms wrestle with, you know, so you have the, the, the prophets that proclaim the truth of God, but then we get into the Psalms, and it's where we're able to experience the truth of God in real life, to really work it out. Um, I thought of the illustration of, in film, you have the final cut and you have the blooper reel. You ever seen these? Now, some of my favorite, like, comedy shows, one of my favorite parts about some of these shows, I won't name the one you know I'm talking about, but um, some of my favorite parts about comedic shows is to watch the blooper reels on YouTube, I can go hours, you know, anybody can on YouTube, it's like a vortex you get stuck in, but um, what you have is you have the final cut, which is the episode where the actors are at their best, and they're reading their lines, and they're doing their thing, but then you have the blooper reel, which is when the actors break character, and you see who they really are, the blooper reel, do you know the reality is life is less of a final cut, it's more of a blooper reel, you're like, yeah, did you just say my life is a blooper reel, Andrew? Yeah. What does that mean? That means that at the end of the day, we have to break character because God sees who we really are and he calls us to be who we really are before him because we can't have true intimacy with knowing who he is if we're not coming to him with who we are. How can we? Part of knowing someone is being known. And so God calls us to break character. That's what the Psalms help us do. So that's the placement of Psalm 23. Let's look at now the poet of Psalm 23. Write this down. The poet of Psalm 23. And as many of you already know, the answer to this observation and this question of who is the poet is the, or the famous, rather, David, the shepherd king of Israel. Would you turn with me to Psalm 78? Turn to Psalm 78. A few pages to the right. Psalm 78 gives us a Nice little uh, Cliff Notes summary of David's life. It gives us three verses that give us good insight into who David was. Psalm 78. Uh, Let's look at verses 70 through 20. It says this about God. It says that God, he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds from following the ewes that had young, he brought them, that had young, he brought him, to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. Look at 72. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. This is who David goes down to be in history. The greatest king in Israel's history, apart, of course, from the VBS answer of Jesus, right? But David, easily, the, 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 the most uh, strong, the most notable king in Israel's history. He's known as the shepherd king of Israel. We even read it there at the end of that psalm about this guy, David, that he shepherded Israel, that he was a shepherd in the sheepfold that God brought and made him a shepherd of his people. This guy is a significant figure, not just in history, but for all eternity. It was through David's line that the Messiah would come. Jesus, while he was on earth, was called the son of David. Significant figure, this guy, David, the shepherd king Of Israel, who penned this poem in Psalm 23, it makes sense, doesn't it? It Makes sense that a shepherd would pen a poem about God as his shepherd. We're going to look at that in in coming weeks. um, Just the importance of David's perspective, knowing sheep and knowing a shepherd. But even here in Psalm 78, to understand this poet, I think this is so valuable for us as we break into Psalm 23, knowing the author. Sometimes knowing the backstory provides so much more context to really receive the the message that's being communicated. You know, I don't know if that's ever happened to you where you're like, you learn the backstory of a song and just knowing when it was written or or knowing what that person was going through or knowing what it actually meant because most songs are poetic and it's kind of imagery like divine nostrils, you know, it's like, what's going on here? You know, sometimes knowing that backstory is so valuable. And here in Psalm 78, I think we get a a few key points um, about David's life. I think we see a few things that the life of David teaches us, specifically this. If there's one area that we can look at with David's life and learn from, David's life shows us about the man or woman that God uses, that God uses. The, The life that God uses, the man or woman that God fills and uses for his purposes. So the first thing that we see with David is we see how God chooses He uses how God chooses who he uses that was the first thing that we read there in Psalm 78 it said that he also chose David his servant chose David his servant now just reading that without any backstory you just go okay he picked him like hey you're David come on but the backstory to this provides the context that David wasn't exactly when it came to be the king of Israel David wasn't in like the first round draft he wasn't a first round draft pick to be the next king wasn't even like seventh round, actually. The way that the story goes, as you know, with Israel's history, you had the people who said, man, we, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations, God. We don't want to be governed by you and by judges, and we don't want necessarily you to be our king. We want to be like the other nations. We want to come under the authority and the, the monarchy of a man. So God said it's going to be the worst decision you could ever make. But have fun. So he says, here's what you do. Here's the guy. You're going to pick him, and it's, it's going to go great on the front end but it's going to smack you on the other side, on the back end. That's what's going to happen. And so there's this man, Saul, who's the first king of Israel. Tall, strong, handsome. Meets every requirement of external expectation to be a good leader. Charismatic. In fact, I hate to talk so bad about him on the front. And to be honest, when you look at Saul's life, he actually starts really well. He's actually, you could say, their first king. He's somewhat destined for greatness. But as we know, it's not how you start the race, is it? It's how you finish. And the way John Corson says it about, John Corson says about uh, Saul's life, he says this. He says, Saul was a man destined for greatness. Unfortunately, Saul had some cracks in his character. Those cracks grew to be crevices that he fell into. Saul had some cracks in his character that grew to become crevices that he fell into. And what happened was his gifts took him to a place that his character wouldn't keep him. One of the scariest places to be. That your skills get you to the platform that you end up being crushed under the weight of where your gifts have brought you. And that's the tragic end of Saul as he turns from God, as he's disobedient to God as he is more after the people's heart and he's after what's on his own heart, Samuel the prophet comes to Saul and says, Saul, God's taken the kingdom from you and he's given it to another. And the person he's gonna give it to you is someone, the person he's choosing, it's someone that he might not meet the external qualifications, he might not have it all together, but he's a man after my own heart. That's what I'm looking for. And so Samuel is told by God in 1 Samuel 16 to go to this guy named Jesse, and Jesse's got some sons, and these sons are some candidates for the next kingship of Israel. And so Samuel is sent by God, and I love the way that God says it in 1 Samuel 16.1. God tells Samuel, I have provided for myself. A king among his sons. In other words, the people provided for themselves on the front end. I provided for them, but now I'm providing a king for me. You got what you got what you had, it didn't work out. I got my guy now. My turn. And so Samuel is sent to Jesse. And Jesse's there lining up all of his sons, and these dudes are studs. Just Hebrew studs. And they're all just, I just imagine them with their poses. It's kind of like the, the muscle flexing competition, I imagine you know, with like all their different gifts and just on full display, freshly brushed teeth with grass. I don't know what they brushed their teeth with back then, but, you know, just, and they're ready. They're ready to be the best. They're ready to make it. And as Samuel is looking at the lineup, as he's looking at the king that God would choose, God speaks to Samuel. God tells Samuel in 1 Samuel sixteen seven, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused I often refuse the, the one that everyone thinks is the right candidate. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. That's often the focus. But God's looking at the heart. Seven sons lined up. Samuel goes, is this all your sons? And I imagine uh, Jesse goes, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's all, it's all my sons. Trust me, right? And then Jesse goes, well, there's actually another but he's with the sheep. He's a shepherd boy. <laughs> you know. And Samuel's like, go get him. <laughs> you know? And it's just like, yes, sir. You know, he goes and he gets Jesse. He he calls Jesse from the sheep or, or Jesse calls David from the sheepfold, and there's David. And before his brothers, this unlikely candidate is anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. Is there a moral to this story? Is there something we could learn from David's story about who God chooses? Uh, yes. The answer to that is what. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 20, chapter 1, verse 26, that God often chooses the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, God chooses, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no flesh can glory in his presence. I like the way the message version says it. Check this out. It says, isn't it obvious That God deliberately chose men and women like David, that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses and chooses these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies, that's good. That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by by blowing your own horn before God. (laughs) Like, I'm impressed. Yeah, nice horn, you know. There's this theme that we see all throughout Scripture, and it's this. It's often the people say that God could never use my life, that God chooses and sees as his best candidates for his work. It's the foolish things of the world. It's the shepherd boys in the field. It's the ones that aren't even picked first for the team. It's people like us in this room that come to God with nothing, with all that we are, just kind of our our, our loaves and fish. We say, Lord, here's all I am. Here's all I have. I love the song. we sang. I came here with nothing but all that you've given me. And that's exactly what God is looking for. The people that God chooses, like David, they they might not be people that have all the capability, but the key ingredient for the person that God uses, like David, is though there might not be capability, there's availability. You do not have to be capable to be used by God. You do need to be available. you got to be willing. You don't have to have it all together. Welcome to the, we don't have it together, club. But there's a willingness to say, God, I know who I'm not. I know who you are. Use my life. Those are often the people that God uses, the ones that we overlook. So we see David, we read there in Psalm 78, he's chosen by God, the man that God chooses. But here's the next thing we see about David's life. Notice the the next verse it says about him. It's so subtle. It says that in Psalm 78 that he chose David his servant. He took him from the sheepfolds. And it says this in verse 71, from following those lambs that he had young. And it says, and he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people. It seems so easy when you read it. If you don't know the life of David, it's like, oh, there he was in the sheepfold. God's like, I need a new king. There's a good king. Come here, shepherd guy. Brought him, and now you're the king of Israel. That's not what happened. Not what happened. What happened after God called David was David entered into a season that most of us spend the rest of our entire lives in, and many of us are in that season right now, and it's this place of process. See, God's called David to be king, but now, is God, now God is going to make David into the king that he's called him to be. God is going to prepare David for what God is preparing for David. Maybe in your life you feel that way a little bit today. God has put something in your heart. He's given you a call. He's given you a vision. And right now you're in that place of the process in between the promise and the payoff. And there you are. What is God doing? He's making you who he's called you to be. He's preparing you for what he's prepared for you. How does God often do that? Well, we often see this, that with the people that God chooses to use, he often, well, he works. How? By bruising us. Okay? So this rhymes, but that's not the only reason why I use the word. Okay? God also bruises who he uses. He bruises who he uses. He chooses who he uses, often the people like David that we wouldn't expect, but those people that he call, they become the people that he often afflicts. And it's through that trial and that testing that David says things like all throughout the Psalms, God, where are you? Now, we look at the 15 years of David's life, and we're like, why, Lord? Why didn't you just, the second David was anointed king, why didn't you just wipe out, like, do like a lightning bolt or something, or like just, I don't know, and just pestilence. You're into, sometimes you do that in the Bible, just like send some pestilence up in there, and just wipe out Saul and his whole army. And then David's just like, yo, what's up? I'm the guy. And everyone's like, yeah, David, you're the man. Okay, why not that, God? Why 15 years of running for his very life from Saul? Why 15 years of living in a tunnel without any light at the end of it? God, why 15 years of a process? Now, here's what's pretty cool. The book of Psalms came out of those 15 years. Sometimes God is producing things out of our life through the things that he's put in our life in ways that we do not see. you think David knew that Solace Church in 2018 would be reading his shepherd's psalm and drawing comfort from it. You think David knew that on September 11th, when a nation faced such loss and tragedy, their president would get up and read this psalm? Did David know that the Messiah would hang on a cross for the sins of the world and invoke David's prayer? You have no idea what God is doing through your life right now. It feels like you're forgotten, but you're not forsaken. God is with you. And like David, you're in that place of the process, in between the promise and the payoff, and God is working. He is faithful. He's the God of the wilderness. So that's why A.W. Tozer, who wrote the book we're going to be reading this fall, he said this, that it is doubtful. It's really doubtful. Whether God can bless a man greatly until he's hurt him deeply. The people that have had the most significant impact on your life are the people who have probably suffered a lot. And you are drawn not just to their charisma, but to their peculiar comfort that they have in the face of such challenge. And the Bible says that in 2 Corinthians 1, that that God comforts us in our tribulation. So that with that comfort he's given us, we could give it out to others. We could say, here's how God's comforted me in my suffering. Here's how God's worked in my life, and now let it be a blessing to you. So God chooses who he uses, then he faithfully bruises who he uses in the place of the process to produce this third thing, which is that God, you can write this down, I don't see it on my slide, but that's okay. Uh, it's number three is he fuses who he, who he uses. He fuses, like a fuse, like, yeah, fuse, F-U-S-E-S, a fuse. He fuses together. I had to look up how to spell that, I'm not going to lie. Um, fuses. And the last thing we read about David in Psalm 78 is, notice this, that he shepherded Israel, this shepherd boy who was the unlikely picked pick for the, the, king, uh, the royal throne of Israel. We see God bruising him and producing in him what God's called him to be through this process in between the promise and the payoff, 15 years of twists and turns. And it produces, in the end, a fusion in David's life. I think it's a fusion that God is seeking to create in all of our lives. And did you see it there at the end of Psalm 78? It's verse 72. Look at this verse if you haven't looked at it yet. It says, David, this is the man that God produced. This is the woman that God is looking to produce. It says, he shepherded Israel, shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart, and he guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. So at the end of David's life, there was this fusion as a leader between his heart and his hands. A lot of times I think we like to pit these things against each other, right? Like, oh, yeah, you're, you're really spiritual and all, but you have zero competence. Come on, get, get it together. Have some skillfulness. Or we say, it's not about gifts or skill. It's about character. And the answer is, which one is it? Is it hands or is it heart? And God would say, yes. Yes. It's a fusion of your gifts, of what God has made you good at, and growing in competence in that area. With David, it says, he shepherded Israel with skillfulness of hands. And, you know, being a shepherd, when you look at the life of David, that wasn't the only skillful gift that God has given him. David was given a lot of different gifts, musical gifts, um, battle gifts. He was a warrior. We, we look at David, we see that there were so many traits that, that challenge us to go, God, what have you put in me and what am I faithful to steward? What are the gifts you've given me? But God is looking to create a, a, a fusion in our lives between our gifts, our competency, and our character personality. It's great that you are the best at what you do, but what's more important about what you do is how you do what you do. So, in your workplace, are you known as the best at what you do, or is there something about how you do what you do that has a reputation? Because that's what people really care about. That's what... And I, I get it. I get God wants to use gifts today in this generation to reach people. But if there's going to be something particular that the outside world looks onto in the church and is drawn to, it's not just that we have unique skills and abilities. Because, come on, the Imago Dei shows us, the image of God on this world shows us that there's skills and abilities everywhere. Right? Like, so, sometimes the church is just trying to become, like, better musically and artistically than, like, secular, quote-unquote, culture. So we can reach. Now, there's nothing wrong with that because... Yeah, God's image is there. But at the end of the day, what people are going to be looking for is some, some kind of substance outside of and behind the gifting. They look at your life and it's like, what is it about you? The way that you respond to that. The way that you handled that. Everybody else in the office was freaking out when that business deal dropped, but you had this like peculiar trust. Where does that come from? Fusion between head and heart. David, the shepherd king of Israel who we see God chose God bruised him, and God fused his life together, which leads us to this last point, which is the purpose of Psalm 23. As David went through this journey and this process of becoming the king that God created him to be, uh, think of it like like an olive that's pressed in an oil press. As trials pressed down on him, anointing oil came out. And what was produced was Psalms, poems like Psalm 23. Would you turn back to Psalm 23? This is, of course, the Shepherd's Psalm. We started with the idea that this is the most, probably the most famous chapter in all the Bible, not the first time that we've met it, but here's a good question what is the purpose? What's the purpose of this psalm? That we all know which is vital so that we can evaluate whether or not we're experiencing the purpose of the psalm or if we're just knowing it. Let's understand it this way first. The purpose of this beloved psalm, Psalm 23, is to describe a life that's lived under God's shepherding care. So this is what David experienced in his journey with God. From the sheepfolds, of his household, to being the shepherd of Israel. All along the way, David was able to draw from his life experience as a shepherd and his life experience in relationship with God, and what came away from it was, you know what? God's my shepherd. I belong to him, and just like these sheep are under my care and they're dependent on me as a shepherd, I'm under God's care. I'm dependent upon him as my shepherd. That's what this psalm is intended to do, to invite us into a life that actually experiences God's shepherding care. We all know Psalm 23. How many of us actually experience Psalm 23? How many of us today can actually say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. AKA, I don't need any. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures rest. He restores my soul. There's no bitterness in my soul. There's no frustration in me spiritually. God is my shepherd. And as a good shepherd under his care, he's restored my soul. I'm healthy. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. How many of us can say that the Lord is my shepherd and under his care, I see him leading me in the righteous path for his glory. The Lord is my shepherd as I'm right now walking through the valley of the shadow of death, which is this life. But sometimes that shadow gets cast a little darker, doesn't it? How many of us can say, I'm not going to fear any evil because you're with me, God." And as a good shepherd, your rod and your staff, they're comforting me. And even here in the presence of my enemies, God, you are preparing me a table. You're you're telling me to sit down and eat. You anoint my head with oil, God. Your blessing is over my life. I sense your presence so much so that my cup is running over. Not only do I not want, I don't need, I'm overflowing, God, with your presence. And then this great declaration I know that despite where I've been, ahead of me is this, mercy and goodness chasing after me all the days of my life, and then it ends with this, and I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. See, it's an inviting call, isn't it? It's a life to be experienced, not just a psalm to know and recite. Um. I want to close as I invite the worship team up in John chapter 10. Will you, cl- will you turn there for our closing passage here? John chapter 10. Maybe right now as I read and I describe that kind of life that is lived under the good shepherd's care, all you can do is say this, I want that. <laughs> Anybody else want that? Anybody else want to walk through fear, walk through trial, walk through suffering? Anybody else want to walk through lack and still be content in the Lord? Anybody want to walk through the challenges of life yet still be filled with an overwhelming joy? We read that, we hear that like David. We go, David, I want to say that like you. Where do I look? The answer is to the Son of God. It's to Jesus Christ. You see, John chapter 10, Jesus, he says this. He says in verse 7, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me, they're thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear him. Look at this, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. See the invitation? Jesus is talking about in his culture, um, false shepherds. A shepherd in the Hebrew culture was was used to describe a political or spiritual leader. And Jesus says, all these other guys that came before me, um, they're not true shepherds. All the other shepherds that you've been looking to in your life, they're not true shepherds. All the other sources of, of hope and health and joy and peace, all the other things apart from God that you've been looking to, they are going to do nothing except, here's what it says. Verse 10, to steal, kill, and destroy. You ever feel like that? You take one step forward and you take end up with two steps back. It's like, and that's what happens when sheep live life without their shepherd. Sheep are—that's uh, the one thing about sheep. We're going to learn this. The one thing about sheep: God made the special species of sheep. They are entirely dependent on a shepherd. W-w- without a shepherd, they're they're lost. Without a shepherd, they're broken. Without a shepherd, they're they're doomed. That's us. The gospel, though, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God is this, that Jesus says, I have come as the door of the sheep, as the shepherd himself, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. a call to fix our eyes on Jesus. Jesus, he's the source, he's the source for your and my abundant life. Psalm 23 doesn't have to be a carrot dangling on a stick before us as we walk through trial. Psalm 23 doesn't have to be this wishful thinking, is the Lord my shepherd? Can I actually be content? Can I actually be filled with joy? Can I actually have a sense of fearlessness in my trial? It doesn't have to be this half true, maybe wishful thinking reality because Jesus Christ has come to give us through giving his life, he came to give us abundant life. He laid down his life as the good shepherd. That's a good shepherd so that we could have abundant life. That's who Jesus is. He is the good shepherd. Another way to say this is he's the one that David's talking about, right? He's the point, actually, of Psalm 23. In fact, there's this really cool encounter Jesus has with his disciples in Luke 24 after he resurrects. And he says, then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, speaking to his disciples, that all the things must be be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets, and there it is, and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Can we just pray? God, would you open our understanding as your people that you are Jesus, our good shepherd, that through you abundant life is available, despite how far we may have wandered from you. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the good shepherd. You leave even the 99 to come after us, the one lost sheep. So we praise you, God, that you're not limited by our wandering but you're faithful to pursue those that wander from you. So we come before you as a community and we ask Jesus, would you be our chief shepherd as a church? We ask and invite you to lead us, that we would follow you, that we might experience the abundant life that you died to give us, to know you as our Lord, as our shepherd. In Jesus' name, amen.